Luke 13, Luke chapter 13 is our sermon text for this morning. No stairs this morning. I had to go through the door. (laughs) By the way, I think I forgot to mention this in the announcements, but the sign-up for the spring cleaning that we have on May 3rd and May 5th, that's still out there in the narthex. Um, Please come if you can. We're we're not going to ask anybody to do anything that they can't do. So if you feel like you might want to help out, but maybe nervous about, you know, what the jobs are. Um, we're real flexible. And so uh, just a couple things that we're wanting to, to do around the church. And if you're wanting to serve in that way, uh, please sign up or, or come out. Uh, Luke 13, this will be on page 1621, in the, if you're using the Pew Bible. Luke 13, beginning in verse 22. God's word given to us for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. Luke 13, verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside, knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. He will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth, When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out, people will come from east and west and north and south, will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. At that same time, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus, said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings." But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many are called, few are chosen. The gate is wide, which leads to destruction. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
Statements like this are not comforting or assuring, are they? No, of course not. So we wonder, is entering the kingdom, having salvation, is that a difficult thing to do? We wonder about this question, and if we have a tender conscience, we don't just wonder about it, we worry about it. We worry about it a lot. We start to wonder, like the question posed today, is it only a small number of people who will be saved in the end? In our culture, the supposed way to God, the way to eternal life, is as wide as you can possibly imagine. Routinely, we're inundated with sayings that go something like, all doors, all ways lead to God, and that each of the over 100,000 organized religions in the United States alone all have some piece of the truth, some part of the right answer. We're all sort of leading on the same way to God or the truth of God. Typical take on this might go something like this. In the end, God will understand that we all desired the same things and that we all deserve to enter whatever awaits us in the afterlife. Basically, everyone is kind of on this road and God will honor that road upon which we all find ourselves. But what does Jesus say? What's the, what's the Bible's answer? Here in this place, we proclaim without apology that Jesus clearly teaches salvation is found in him and it's found in no one else. That much is abundantly clear if you take scripture seriously, if you regard it as an authority in your life. That much is clear in scripture. But this passage more directly deals with something else. Not just that Jesus is the only way, but how we enter the kingdom through him. How one might claim a proper connection to Jesus and rest in the reward that he offers to his people in the gospel. There are two almost opposing ideas or or apparently opposing ideas today in this text. Striving, which is the way you would probably more accurately translate what says in our translation, make every effort. The word there is just strive. Striving on the one hand and resting on the other. Competing fighting, and laying down our efforts. These two ideas highlight the teaching and the call of Jesus to the world and how it relates to the glory of God's grace. So the relation of those two things, striving and resting, can be stated this way. We are given all of the blessings of salvation in Christ through faith and repentance. And our life in Christ must be marked by effort to cling to that gospel, that truth, by God's grace, above all others. That's what we see in this passage today from Jesus. Four things that we'll trace. The question, the answer, the command, and the invitation. Question, answer, command, and the invitation. As we turn to this text, we see that there's another mention of Jesus going to Jerusalem, which alludes us back to chapter 9, right? Luke 9, 51, kind of a turning point in the gospel. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. And so all things about uh, the the accounts that Luke is telling now are getting us to Jesus going to Jerusalem because he has been appointed to go and die on the cross there. That is his mission and his central purpose. And as we're going to see later in this passage, human interference can't stop Jesus from doing that. No matter what any human being might do or try to do, it's not going to stop Jesus from fulfilling the mission that his father has given to him. So he's going on his way, he's teaching, he's proclaiming. 
obviously still going to be healing, performing miraculous signs. Someone asks him a question, a bit of a zinger, a tough question, comes to him, says, Jesus, are only a few going to be saved? Are those who will enjoy eternal life just a small number? And there's a whole context to this question present in Jesus' day. And of course, this is something that people still talk about today. But in the times of Jesus, in Israel, there were basically three, three positions that uh, outlined where most people would have fallen on this question, how many people will be saved or who will be saved. Three, three answers to that. The first answer was strictly ethnic All Israelites will be saved. If you are descended from Abraham by blood, you're in. Don't worry. But everyone else, out. The second answer was even narrower. It said Israelites will be saved, but there's going to be sinners within the nation of Israel that uh, excuse themselves from the kingdom of God. This would have been the, the position of the Pharisees and the moralists of Jesus' day. So, for example, the Pharisees believed that if you did not think that the law came from heaven or you rejected the resurrection, then you will not have any inheritance in, in the kingdom. So even narrower, uh, righteous Israelites will be saved. And the third position was um, uh, the more liberal position of the day, if I can throw scare quotes around that, which said that Israelites will be saved and then there will be even some Gentiles uh, who get in too. There's nuances to this, to this third position. Probably everybody would... Um, Position it a little bit differently, but that was the third position. Uh, Israelites and even some Gentiles. In case you're wondering, no one has ever found evidence that present at that time was the position that it was going to be Israelites and the Dutch who would be saved. Also interesting, there's a whole host of evidence that a a very common position was that Israelites and Norwegians were going to be saved. I'm just kidding, my ancestors were pagan barbarians at this point, so no one would have thought that. So that's the question. Here's Jesus' answer, or his response to this question. And his response gives shape to the rest of what we'll consider today. Let's consider the response of Jesus. He does not answer this question directly, but his response tells us much about how to think through the questions and the issues of salvation and destiny and how we are to live in light of it. So really important, really important that we think about what Jesus is saying here. So rather than than answering this question directly and answering this question in a general sense about all of humanity, what he does is he responds in a way that shows concern for what the individual must do. What is it that you must do relative to this question of who will be saved? The first thing he says is a command. I'm going to unpack that a little bit later, but the first thing he says is a command. Strive, he says. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Notice, there is only one door, and it is narrow. This word for narrow would have given the idea of this door being so small that even a small person would have had trouble uh, getting into it. So, uh, even though Jesus is not answering this question directly, the first impression that we have is, is not a positive one but a negative one in terms of many or few being saved. The second point he makes in addition to the narrow door is that it's only open or it's only the offer to enter through it is temporary. Verse 25, the owner of the house will shut the door at some point. 
at which time no one else will be admitted. So again, something that doesn't give the impression of many being saved, but few. And the last point, which Jesus makes, is from the end of verse 25 through 27, and that's this, that origin, bloodline, and even acquaintance or proximity to Jesus do not determine salvation. Two times in these three verses, uh, the owner of the house whom we most naturally understand to be Jesus. It's kind of a semi-parable. It sort of sets up this story as an illustration. The owner of the house, we take it to be Jesus because they say, we, we were with you in the streets, we saw you, we ate, and we drank with you. So we take the owner of the house to be Jesus. And twice in these three verses, he will say, I do not know where you come from. Keep in mind that this is an interaction between Israelites and, hypothetically, Jesus. So, obviously, in that sense, Jesus will know exactly where they are coming from. Their sons and their daughters of Abraham by bloodline. Where someone comes from, or where someone came from back then, was much more important than it is now. So, we can imagine how Jesus saying this would strike his hearers as both odd and insulting. Thus, while Jesus does not directly answer the question of how many will be saved... He gives all of these clues which lean more in a negative direction than a positive one. While all of his comments are anchored by that first command, strive to enter through the narrow door. So we'll turn our attention then to that command now. So we've seen the question, the response, and now the command. When Jesus commands his hearers to strive to enter, he's telling us to do something. What is he telling us to do? find the answer in this passage, we have to pay close attention to what Jesus is saying and think about his words. We consider what we've seen so far. What is it that Jesus' story tells us about those who try to enter the door after it's too late? The owner of the house closes the door. What is it that the people who make an appeal are appealing to? They appeal to outward or external things, don't they? They claim an acquaintance or a familiarity with Jesus Or they lean on their tribal connection to Abraham. But neither of these work. And the the master of the house ends by saying, Away from me, all of you workers of evil. This is a direct quote from a psalm. Can you guess which psalm? Psalm 6. Psalm 6 that we read earlier today and we even sang it together. See, I'm always always up to something. I've got to pay attention to it. We know that psalm functions as a psalm of confession... But as we see, particularly, or as we saw, particularly from David's perspective, he makes confession to God, but he also asks for help in another way. And what is it? It's that he's the anointed one of God who's being oppressed by his enemies. There are those around him who are doubting that he's the anointed one of God, who are seeking his life, who are trying to take him from his position of power. And it's that aspect that Jesus is referring to and wants us to think relative to himself as he quotes Psalm 6. Because in that moment when Jesus says, away from me, all of you workers of evil, he's asking us to think of him as the speaker in Psalm 6. Just as David was the anointed one of God who faced opposition, so it's the same for Jesus. The anointed one of God. The one who came as the Messiah King. The natural son of God. But he faced opposition in his ministry. Doubt. The plotting of enemies who would destroy him. All of these things are what Jesus had to deal with. And David points to a vindication one day. He says, God has heard my plea. He will vindicate me. And the same is true of Jesus, isn't it? But when will Jesus be vindicated? 
It's at the resurrection. It happens at, probably in two stages, right? The resurrection, when Jesus is raised from the dead, that is the declaration from God that he is the righteous one whom death could not hold. And then finally, when Jesus comes again, that is his final vindication when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and that he truly is the righteous one and the narrow door through whom salvation can be found. So when we bring it back to this passage in Luke, What we learn through Jesus invoking Psalm 6 is that those who would claim an external connection to Jesus, an acquaintance with Jesus, have no claim on him because they have missed something about his call and his teaching and his message. Did you catch that? External connection or nearness is no replacement for internal acceptance which is shown through faith and repentance. Think about what Jesus has been teaching in the last few chapters alone. He has called himself the greater than Jonah. Someone greater than Jonah is here. And what is it that we see Jonah do? He goes to Nineveh. He proclaims a very simple message, a call to repentance, and the people of Nineveh repent. Jesus says, I'm greater than Jonah. I'm going to come. I'm going to preach. I'm going to proclaim. And people are going to turn to me in faith and Repentance. He has called people to acknowledge him before men. To acknowledge him before men. He said in chapter 13 that unless you repent, you will perish, just like those who come under all of these tragedies and atrocities in the world. Jesus has repeatedly and consistently shown us what the narrow door is. It's not following Jesus around from town to town. It's not getting him to notice you. It's not a question of bloodline or something external. It is the internal acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord of all and the one who saves from sin, faith, and repentance. I I was troubled this week as I saw uh, two people who are kind of in the public square, and I really sort of respect what they say socioculturally and and even even politically in a sense, but they were talking about the Christian faith and Um, neither of them are really biblical Christians, but uh, because they're experts in other fields, then we always want to impute more expertise to people than uh, what they deserve. And they were saying, yeah, uh, Christianity is a message of grace where you just sort of acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior. You just sort of kind of give it a tip of the cap, and then you're good. That's the message of, of, of Christianity. And I said, that's, that's not it at all. Faith and repentance. What is repentance? We talked about uh, in chapter 13 when Jesus says repent or perish. The three C's of repentance, right? Contrition. Understanding that I have offended a holy God. Confession. Bringing my sins before him. And then change. That is a purposing after turning from my sin and following my Savior. That doesn't mean that all of the, that the change that's inherent in repentance needs to be present. In other words, it works righteousness. But repentance is acknowledging your sin, turning from it, and trusting in your Savior. Purposing to follow Him all of your days. Trusting in that His work is relevant for you. That's what faith is. Trusting and resting in Jesus. So Jesus is pointing us here to the need for internal acceptance of his lordship and his message. The necessity of faith and repentance of sin for salvation. And ultimately he is pointing us to himself as the door, the way, and the truth, and the life. 
perhaps this leaves us a little bit confused because we're thinking, okay, well, how does, it, how does the striving and resting, how does that all work together? Those ideas in some ways seem opposed to one another. Well, we think about this command by Jesus to strive. Uh, this command gives us a really helpful picture of what it means to have faith, what it means to trust in Christ, and to think about ourselves as those who have faith in Christ to the end. To the end. All the way to the end of our lives. To understand this point, I want us to consider quickly the Apostle Paul. I wanted to do it through the passage in Philippians chapter 3 that Reverend uh, Reuben Cernus preached for us a few weeks ago. Philippians chapter 3. Because uh, there, Paul walks us through exactly the mindset that Jesus rebukes here. Appealing to external things. Appealing to a certain connection to Jesus or to other things religiously. Paul rebukes that and he says, that was the way I used to live. Rather, what Paul develops is a metaphor of the Christian life. Of having faith and trusting and resting in Jesus. uh, That of a runner who is running a race to win. To win a wreath, is what Paul says. Or that's the, the equivalent of a medal in our time. So in Philippians 3, Paul warns the Philippians about false teachers. He says, you need to be aware that there are people out there that are mixing the gospel with all kinds of bad things. The Judaizers are saying you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to have uh, come under certain parts of the Mosaic law which Jesus had fulfilled. So it was a message of Jesus plus works of law in the flesh. It was a false gospel. So Paul talks about confidence in the flesh. And he says he has all kinds of reasons to have confidence in the flesh. Of Abraham's people, obedient to the law. Most of us are familiar with this passage. Circumcised, zealous. All of that, he says, it's nothing. He regards it as nothing, as of having no profit, no merit in and of itself. But what does have profit for him? What does have merit? Knowing Jesus Christ and being found in him. He sets up two kinds of righteousness. Righteousness found through the law. Righteousness found through faith in Jesus Christ. He abandons the first. He completely abandons it. Says he, he regards it as garbage. And he focuses all of his efforts, every ounce of his energy, every muscle in his being, holding on to the second. Paul says that his life in Christ is like an Olympian pursuit. An Olympian pursuit. He says that he presses on. He goes forward, pressing on to attain the goal for the prize. Important to understand this, that Paul is not denying that he is already found as being righteous in Christ by faith. In fact, that's exactly what he affirms. What he is teaching is that the people of God must stay steadfast in faith to the very end. By faith we are justified, by faith we will be glorified, and we must strive, as Jesus says. We must strive to be found, abandoning all other ways of salvation to God, all other doors, and continuing to exercise faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And in him alone. Abandon all other doors. We must strive to be found clinging to that promise. By faith we are found in Christ. We strive to remain in him. And to always be found clinging to the message that only by faith we are justified 
and saved. This is why Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight. The same exact verb here as what was what Jesus says in Luke. Strive. There it's strive. In Timothy, it's fight the good fight of faith. So we could say compete in the good competition or strive in the right way of striving. So to summarize all of these things, we'll hone in on a few things. The narrow door of salvation is not bloodline. It's not external connection to Jesus. It's not earthly adherence to the law of Moses or any other external thing. The narrow door of salvation is faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of sin. The good fight of faith is always understanding this gospel message and being resolute and determined in order to lay hold of eternal life. As Paul tells Timothy, lay hold of eternal life. So what Jesus is calling us to be is steadfast in faith. For it is only by faith that we attain righteousness and eternal life. With all of that being said, you're probably saying, okay, so is it that we, you, you, you trust in Christ and then God sets you out and, uh, you know, kind of in the desert almost and sets you out there and there's this whole world of temptation and opportunities to wander. You're kind of on your own. Of course not. Of course not. Same book, Philippians chapter 1. It's where Paul says at the beginning chapter 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's vision for the Philippians is that as they have been found in Christ, as they have looked to him in faith and repentance, that on the last day they will be found standing firm in Christ, abandoning all other doors, standing firm in the hope of the gospel because they have walked in faith. And because they have walked in faith, that God will be vindicated on that day, looking at his people and saying, those are mine justified by faith, renewed in Christ, sanctified, not perfectly, not completely, that's not what I'm saying, but standing firm in the hope of Christ. And because it's understanding that it was God who did it, he was the one who who started the work, the sovereign work of God's grace, regenerating your heart, bringing you to life, and it's because it was him every step of the way, who gets all of the glory? God gets all of the glory. Because he's the one who is working in us from beginning to to end, ask yourself, is it you who produces the desires to remain faithful and to follow Jesus and to cling to him in faith all of your days? Or ask yourself, is it the sovereign work of God within you, giving you faith as a gift, justifying you through his calling and his remaking you, sanctifying you through all the means of grace, through preaching, through the sacraments, through the life of God's people, through the encouragement we give one another, with his spirit abiding in you, bringing to life the word of God, giving you all of the benefits of Christ and salvation by the Spirit. God uses various means, but it's always his sovereign work. As we see in, we've seen in the Gospel of Luke, some some of these, the commentary on the difficulty that Israelites had of of breaking out of this, this sense of bloodline, but yet even at the same time, we know that God uses the means of family the covenantal family to often bring people to the knowledge and understanding of the gospel. We see here in the kingdom of God, who is it? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God's faithfulness. And so we need to understand that God uses various means. One of those means is through the covenant family to understand God's promises. But the warning of Jesus must be heeded. 
do not understand that that is the ultimate thing. God may use that as a means to bring to light your understanding of the gospel. I know that personally in my life, I never, I never knew a day where I did not understand Jesus Christ was Lord of my life. It made sense. Huge blessing that from a young age, my parents taught me that I was a wretched sinner in need of salvation. So that's always the way that I viewed the world. I need to be saved by Jesus. And God used the means of the family that he placed me in. I know he did to bring me to faith. But how terrible would it be, how sad would it be to be raised in a covenant family, given the signs of God's people, and to miss the narrow door of Christ. God uses means, various means, to bring the elect to eternal life, to make us still clinging in faith to the Savior, still striving and fighting the good fight of faith, still found in the one who is the narrow door, the only one in whom we find eternal life. So that's Jesus' command to strive, to strive to be found in him. I'll have to end quickly because I know I've, I've already used up my time for the morning. We'll close with the invitation. And Jesus, uh, he, he, he balances the striving with the resting by showing here at the end of the passage the extravagant love and the extravagant grace of God. He, he shows what is the kingdom of God like? It's people coming from all four corners of the globe, north and south and east and west. The, the point being that, yes, the door is narrow. Yes, there is only one door. Yes, it is only open for a, for a temporary amount of time. But what seems impossible with man is more than possible with God. So Jesus hones in and says, as far as who will be saved... You need to understand that you only enter through one door, and that door is narrow, and that door is only open temporarily. And sound, you're getting smaller and smaller and smaller vision, less and less and less. But, of course, the wonderful message is that north and south, east and west, every tribe, tongue, and nation, the kingdom of God made up of people who have heard this gospel message, which should have failed from the start, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. A, a savior who was killed in public, humiliated, uh, unlearned apostles who went out and proclaimed it. It's a, it's a place, it's a, it's a gospel message that should have failed from the beginning, but it's continued to be proclaimed in public places and in secret, in prisons and in houses, in caves and in peaceful times, in churches and sanctuaries. See, no one can stand in the way of the saving purposes of God. And that's what Jesus says when people say, you need to be worried about Herod. And so Jesus calls him a jackal. It's probably the best way to translate that word, where he says, go tell that fox. Calls him a jackal. In other words, he's like a varmint. He, he's on an earthly throne, wielding earthly power, but he can't stand in the way of the saving purposes of God. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. That's what's going to happen. No one can stop that. The Father has appointed it from eternity. The eternal covenant of salvation, that Jesus would go and that he would die. In Jerusalem, And then as he mentions Jerusalem, he's brought to this, this emotional point uh, of, you imagine Jesus on, on the verge of tears, weeping over Jerusalem. This city which has rejected the prophets, this city to which he is going to die, that will betray him, that will not accept him as the Lord and the Messiah that he is. But his, his weeping over Jerusalem shows us once again of the extravagant love and grace of God. All things are appointed by God and exist in his sovereign will. 
But yet there's this aspect of God's will, this mysterious and wonderful aspect that, uh, of God's will that says that he desires that the sinner would turn to him in repentance. The gospel is always a universal good faith offer to the world. Jesus looks at this city that will crucify him and reject him. His heart breaks because the posture of Jesus is always one who says, Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, the point of the striving and the resting is that the narrow door of Jesus Christ, you go through that door, and is it a door to more work? No, it's a door to rest. Rest, because all of the blessings of salvation, all of the work of God that was finished on your behalf is yours through faith in Christ. And so that's our call, to strive to be found in him, trusting in him, never abandoning our faith, never abandoning the only true gospel, seeing Jesus as our righteousness. He's not a taskmaster. He is like this mother hen, gathers her chicks under her wings and protects them, That is the good news of the gospel. So when you hear strive, don't think works righteousness. Think fighting, straining to always trust in your Savior and in Him alone. Strive to enter His rest and never let Him go. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We praise You for this message. We pray that You would build up Your saints. We pray that You would call more to know and understand this message and to place their faith in you, and to repent of their sins. We thank you for this time to meet, to worship you, to look into your word. Pray that all of it would go to your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen.